Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing today? How's everybody doing today? Anybody doing bad? Because if you're doing bad, you're in the right spot. You know, if your body's hurting, this is the place to come. If you want to experience the peace of heaven, this is the place to come. It's such a delight to be in the presence of the Lord. And I know that, that as we're coming in, we're probably distracted by, by many things, you know, especially the ones with kids. You know, we, we had five kids, getting five kids to church Sunday morning. Well, A, it was all Wendy's job because I went early. But it was a big deal, I understand. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of things that demand our attention, that demand our focus. There might be things in your life that are vexing you right today. There might be things that are disturbing you. And uh, maybe there's fears. Maybe there's crisis. Maybe there's pain. Whatever it is, I can tell you one thing. There's one answer. And it is the presence of God. The peace of God that passes understanding is the answer to the world. And as we worship, we have an opportunity to draw near to that peace. We have an opportunity to develop what is in fact a skill of worshiping God in what the Bible calls spirit and truth. And so we are growing in our ability today. Every time we come together, what does it mean to draw near to God? He said, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. So let's not sit back. Let's not wonder if God is interested. Let's not put the ball in his court because he said the ball is in your court. That if you draw near to me in the biblical fashion that I've prescribed, I will respond in like like way and I will draw near to you. So, Father, today we want to say thank you, God, that you've created a way for us to access your presence. God, thank you that you've given us the means, despite our weakness, despite the sin in our lives, despite our failure. God, you, the perfect one, has made a way. You've made a way for us to draw near. So, Lord, we want to draw near today. We want to say, you are the hope of the nations. You are the hope of my life. And we long for you. So let's worship him this morning with all of our hearts. There's a story in the Bible of a blind man. Blind Bartimaeus. And he had heard about a man named Jesus who was doing amazing miracles. And suddenly, as he's begging in the place he typically begs, he hears a commotion, and he inquires, what, what is it? And somebody tells him, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, it's a miraculous moment of con- convergence. But what if he doesn't get noticed? What if Jesus doesn't come and heal him? Can he take the chance that this is all in God's design? You know, what happens, what happens, que sera, sera. If it's really God's will, 
God, show him where I am and have him come to me. What if he had taken that approach? He didn't take that approach. He thought, I am not leaving this to chance. I am not leaving this to, to random possibilities. My need is too great for this. The moment, the opportunity is too great. I must cry out. I must be the one that gets his attention. And he begins to cry out, Son of David, Son of David, Son of David. And we look at that story and we celebrate his, his hunger and his passion. And yet the reality is that every Sunday, every time we meet together, every day of our life, Jesus is not far away. But the question is, do we have that spark of belief that if I cried out, he would come? When we stand before God and he shows us all of our lives and we, we, start to, we want to talk to him about all of our disappointments, all the times when you should have, you could have, and you did not. And he says, actually, I was there, but I was waiting for you. I was looking in your direction, and, and you were passive. Instead of drawing near to me, you wanted me, even though I'd already come all the way from heaven down to earth, you wanted me to come the last couple of inches. No way. It was up for you to come to me. It was up to you to lay your pride down, lay your dignity down, be prepared to look like a fool, be prepared to shout out and, and possibly not have your need met in that moment. How badly are the needs in your life today? How badly do you want him? Do you even believe that he wants to touch your life? The greatest tragedy will be everything we left on the table that was already ours. So, Father, we want to we say desire of the nations. Desire of the nations. Desire of the nations. Come. Desire of the nations, Lord. Oh, God. Oh, God, we want to... We want more of you. We want more of you. We want to leave this place different than when we came in. You know, the experience that we have is that when you become a Christian, and if you've been a Christian a long time, you know this, the desperation, the need is so deep, you get touched, and then you get touched again, you get touched again, but the space between the significant moments of your spiritual life start to get longer and longer. And it's not because the need is any less, because we are so far below who He is. Our need is still a quantum leap beyond what we can imagine. Our need is still unfathomably huge. But we begin to think that I could make it as I am. I can make it to the end. You know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I could, you know what? Why, why look like an idiot? You know, why, why, why have that big matzo ball hanging out there of laying yourself out and crying out and nothing happens? You know, I could probably make it. When David 
pursue the presence of God. He did it with all of his heart. And that's why he was called a man after God's own heart. And when he danced before the ark, and they were leading the ark up to Jerusalem, he danced almost stripped naked. And, and his wife, who knew what royalty, how it should behave, she was appalled. She was shocked. She was ashamed. And she rebukes him for his lack of dignity. And his response is, I will be even more indignified than this because I know what it is I'm looking for. I know what I need. I know what I'm longing for. She didn't have any clue. She didn't understand what it meant to seek God. She thought it was a ceremony. She thought it was a sequence of words and songs and motions. What? And David knew, no, we could have the presence of God in our nation that could make this nation great. I am seeking God for his glory to come to my, my, our nation. How is it you don't understand this? We're not here to sing good songs. We're here in the midst of a needy nation, a needy province, a needy city with sin and darkness and broken people all around. And the only answer is the presence of God that could come on a church, on a people, on a city. Oh God, we love your presence and we want more of you. Oh Now, the fact is, we are on a journey as Christians to learn what it means to seek Him with all of our hearts. We're discovering what that means. We have these examples in Scripture. David, of course. Moses. Moses sought God, pursued God. The prophet Samuel, when it says that when Saul sinned and was rejected from God as being king, says that Samuel went and cried out to God all night. Well, you say, well, that's Old Testament. You know, we don't need that anymore because we got the blood of Jesus and there's a new and living way. And Oh, yeah? What about James? He says, he says, seek, mourn, lament. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourself. And later on, I may touch in my message of why that is. Say, listen, there's something inside of you that loves the world. And the only way to get away from it is to desperately desire something different. And he's saying, weep, lament, and mourn to get away from this condition. That's in your, it's a condition of your being that you can't change by yourself. You need to reach out to God with a kind of desperation you don't even know is possible. You've never, ever exhibited Father, we want to be trained. Can, can we say that, Lord, we want? We want to know how to get a hold of you. We want to know how to be changed. We want to know how to change a city. We want to know how to see, Lord, the hidden things of our lives changed, not just the surface things. God, we want to worship you with all of our hearts. So, God, we give you permission to teach us how to seek you so that when you say seek my face the whole response of our being is Lord your face I will seek God we long to be that generation of Jacob that seeks your face thank you Lord let me say one more thing 
You might be sitting there, you think, oh, man, I, it's embarrassing. You know, I tried to cry out to God once, but it felt, it sounded so hollow. It sounded so half-hearted. It was embarrassing. I, I just can't do it. You know, when I get to the level that, that I can express the desire for God as intensely as, you know, a few of your crying out heroes, you think, then I'll do it. But that's not the way it works. You have to empty yourself of, of the shallowness. You have, to, you have to cry out with an empty sound and, and let God fill it over time. Because what David was doing was humbling himself. And what we don't want to do is humble ourselves. You know what humbling yourself is? Doing it imperfectly. Doing it, doing it when it's not like how it should sound, when it sounds hollow and empty. Uh, I'm going to wait till I can do it with a... That day's not going to come unless you lay your life down. Unless you say, God, getting you is more important than looking good. Having more of you is more important than impressing people around me. That's the choice you're making every day. That's the choice that blind Bartimaeus made right there. They came and they said, shut up, you're making a scene. I don't care. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. Do you know what it's like to be blind? Do you know what it's like to have a chance to see? I don't care what you think. The problem is we care. We care what everybody thinks. Our wives, our children, the people next to us, we don't want to do it wrong. We're protecting an image. And David said, I'm not protecting an image. I'll make myself even more undignified than this because I know what I can get. I know what it's worth. I know what I'm after, and I know that he wants to give it. I might not know where that line is, but I'm going to do everything possible to cross it. There are desperate needs in our lives today. Right here in this room, there is depression. There is fear. There is addiction. There is, there is hidden sin. God, let us be a people that cry out to you. God, that cry out to you that aren't satisfied with looking good. God, change the things I cannot change. God, change the things we cannot change. Listen, I'm a pastor. I know what goes on behind closed doors. I know the brokenness. I know the strife. I know the problems in families and lives. And we're not here to pretend we're better than what we are. We're here to get our lives fixed. That's why we're here. God. God. God, we long for more of you. Now, it doesn't end here. It's a life of desire that's being developed. A fullness of a sound that comes from your heart to his heart. And it's growing. With each time you lay down your life, with each time you say no to yourself, with each time you, you compromise your image for the sake of truth, another layer is stripped off of you of what's fake in exchange for what's, what's genuine. That's the journey. That's the cost. Salvation is free, but the journey costs you everything. All right, I want to bring up our wonderful Pastor Mark, our apostolic leader in this house, uh, who once again was away in the nations, but we are so thankful for that, right? Because, again, I think we all know this. 
when you actually give, it always comes back to you, right? And one of the hearts we have as a church is we know God has a heart for the nation and the nations, so we too have a heart for the nations. And so we are absolutely privileged that we have a leader who gets to go into the nations and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world, aren't we? And so when he comes home, we cover him, we bless him, we welcome him, and we just say we love you. Can we say we love you, Pastor Mark? We love you, Pastor Mark. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. Just returned from Brazil. I went with uh, our friends at the summit. Uh, Chris and Nikki Mathis asked me to join them on this trip. Ended up being a little bit different than we expected. Uh, It was a church that was really in significant revival. And then when we went down, they were in the middle of a massive demonic attack against them. And uh, I won't give you the details, but it's just huge. And so, you know, we're, the, our, our role then changed from revival events to what can we do to shore up this body of people who are hurting quite significantly. And so some beautiful, beautiful people. I was actually incredibly moved by this particular facet of what I saw in the church it was the wholesale dedication to the kingdom of God. And again, I know it's a feature of, of wealth. When we have wealth, we have opportunities to divest ourselves in, in terms of, of, of uh, or invest in a variety of interests. So as, you know, as North American people, we, our lives are pretty much set. I mean, when I was a kid, I was doing a sport every, pretty much every night. Well, they're not doing sports every night. <laughs> They are reaching the lost. They're going to the streets. They are doing home groups. They're, I mean, the, 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 the culture of the church is completely invested in, in, in saving their city. And at a level I've never seen in my life, except in places like that. And you know what? Uh, I'm wondering, let's just throw this out there. I'm wondering if maybe one of the things that delays revival is, is God's question mark as to whether we will invest ourselves in it when it comes. Will we make room in our lifestyles for the passion that is in his heart to reach the lost and the world? Or will we do everything possible to maintain the status quo of our cultural existence? Wow. What if that was, and I'm not saying it is, but what if that was one of the factors between us and revival? Was that you know, God, God, maybe God tests us on a regular basis. Are you willing to give up your preferences about how your week goes for an interruption of revival? I have to say, um, you know, I've, I've, weighed the, I've weighed it in the past and I've realized that though I said I wanted revival, the Lord said, yeah, actually you don't. So I'm working through that <laughs> in my own heart. So if you have a journey to work through those things and answer those questions, I encourage you to consider, ask them honestly. And if you can't say yes to the Lord, say this. Say, I'm willing to be changed so I can say yes. Uh, Giving him permission to change your heart. Right? All right. So Father, thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you that... Oh, God, you, are, you have a kingdom, you have uh, a system that you've called us into, and you are raising up sons and daughters 
in your own image, to share in the inheritance of your son, Jesus. And oh God, we want to participate in that kingdom that is coming. And so Father, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Now one of the, uh, one of the false comforts of religion is the suggestion that when we get to heaven, we all get the same stuff. You know, there's no differentiations. Well, uh, there's loads and loads and loads of scriptures that say that's not true. That actually the distribution of power in heaven is uh, incremental, right? God will discriminate. He will give more to some and less to others. And, uh, and if that, that makes us fearful, then... Uh, we're probably not fully invested as we should, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the reality is that's what's, that's what's coming. I remember hearing a, a guy, it was almost a church split over that. Like this guy heard, what? what? People are getting different things? No, no, we're all getting the same harps, the same garments. Nobody's going to be different. Huh? No, no, no. We will have different levels of reward. And so the question is, what can I do now to participate more fully in the kingdom of God? Because I want to experience it now. I want to experience it in the context that from the time I was a young Christian, I read books about revival, about a presence of God coming down in meetings, about, about people suddenly being aware of heaven and hell and the reality of God and crying out to him, calling out to him. I, I've heard you know, this knowledge of God coming on the Scottish Isles. I've, I've seen the the levels of conversion and, and retention rates of, of people who were saved under Charles Finney. I mean, amazing levels of conviction and change of, of internal being. And I'm thinking, God, that, that's what we want. That's what we need in Canada. That's what I want in, in the ministry, the work that I'm doing. I mean, uh, you know, when, when Jesus went and preached, they didn't all love him, but nobody could ignore him, right? They, they either loved him or wanted to kill him. But there was very little middle ground. You know, the, the world didn't just go on as it was. He was an interruption in the world. And so, so part of revival, part of being the kingdom of God, part of being sons of the Most High, is carrying enough of the presence of heaven to be an interruption to this present age. And so that's a part of what we're after. And we're under no illusions. Well, I used to be under a lot of illusions, to be honest. You know, that I was further ahead in this thing. I, in fact, I was thinking about it this morning. I was thinking, there was a time when I was a young Christian, you know, because I, 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 you know, I stopped overtly sinning. And I was going to Bible school. I'd cut my hair. I'd, you know, I had really long hair. And it was, you know, gave away all my demonic music. And I was, uh, stopped drugs. And I was, you know, I was doing, going to church, lifting my hands, even dancing. I thought, man, I am doing so good, you know. <laughs> It's like, but I, the truth is, I look back now and I think, oh, what a superficial vision of what God was after in my life. What an amazing, you know, a few tweaked behaviors is not really the fullness of what he's after. And so that's, that's, that's just all my, per, my superficial vision could see. And that's, that's, that's why I, I thought, well, what else could there be? You know what? Well, yeah, there's got to be something because it would be proud to say, I'm done. <laughs> there must be something. I, but for the life of me, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> just, 
had to ask a couple people. <laughs> but what do they know? <laughs> so, God has a vision of where he's taking you. God has a vision of what your life can look like. And not only the outcomes of your life, but the outcomes of your life are going to be predicated upon the kind of person you're becoming. And the kind of your person you're becoming is, is through transformation. And so we are, we are not being better human beings. We are be, being something more than men and women. I mean, in fact, Paul rebukes the, the Corinthians. He says, you're acting like mere men. Like mere men. You're acting human. You're, you're being normal. Okay. So God re, reorganized yeah. our ideas yeah. of what it means to be Christian. Yeah. Anyway, so I wanted to talk for a bit about the book of James. Uh, we'll see how far we get into it. Book of James, one of my favorite books, increasingly one of my favorite books. At the beginning, I remember reading about, you know, there was some debate with the early church as to whether the book of James was even biblical. Well, evidently it is because it's in there. But, you know, there was some question because he was saying some things that were a little bit controversial to the message of faith. He said, faith without works is dead. So he said, listen, it's great that you say you believe something, but there should be evidence of that. And so, um, you know, that, that caused a certain consternation in the, in the minds of some people. So uh, I want to delve into this a little bit. Now, I'm not going to touch all of it, but I'm going to give you just a basic framework of what he's dealing with. And here's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with Christians. Christians who are imperfect. Christians who are partially complete. Christians who began a journey and who have been frustrated by the fact that things are not moving in the direction they had hoped, and they don't know why. They, they're going after the promise of being the sons of God and all the rest of that. They have the message of, of you know, God is wanting to, to have uh, joint heirs. He's wanting to have people that he shares the administration of the kingdom of heaven with. And so they're moving in that direction, but, but they can't seem to touch all the things that they think they should be able to touch. And so he begins with two, he begins with the exhortation and he finishes the book essentially with that exhortation. I'll tell you what that exhortation is. He says, patience, patience. He said, listen, this journey is much bigger than you think. And it's not about peripheral tweaking of behaviors and modification of, of the language and your terminology. It's great that that's happening, but that's literally skin deep. I, it's about a transformation, and the transformation can only happen in as much as he can get to the deeper parts of you. So what he's essentially, and as he lays it out, he essentially says, listen, have patience because there's a work that's begun, but it's really, you, you have a superficial view of it, and I'm going to give you evidences that there's stuff underneath the surface that needs to be dealt with. And then he, at the end of the book, he once again, he says, patience, be patient. He says at the beginning, be patient. At the end, he says, be patient. Let me read those verses. James 1, verse 2 to 4. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be, and I love these words, perfect 
that you may be complete, lacking nothing. So in other words, he said, listen, there is a provision for you. Let me, let, me, let me throw this. There is a provision. Whatever frustrates you in your Christian life right now, whatever things that you, you can't seem to get by, you need to know up front that there is a provision for this. Peter says it this way. He says, all things necessary for life and godliness are provided through the knowledge of him. He said, listen, everything you need to be in order to be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing is available. And that's part of what the exhortation was. When I'm, you know, when I'm telling you to seek God, I'm trying to say, listen, there is another level. There is, there is, there is another level. And what, part of what should characterize us is desperation for that other level, willingness. You know, I was, somebody was giving me an illustration the other day. We were talking about sports and and I love sports because, especially when it comes to wholeheartedness and all, all in nature. If you watched that hockey game the other night with, against Washington, third period, I mean, Connor McDavid, he turned it up a gear and just turned the game around. It was a beautiful thing to watch. But to use another sports analogy, there's a team called the New Patriots. Anybody know that? It's New England Patriots? Oh. <laughs> okay. We won't delve into that. But. <laughs> anyway, they have a pretty good track record. But, but they talk about having a winning culture. And, um, and, uh, and I, I just saw this little clip on Facebook the other day. Who's the, what's the name of their quarterback? Tom Brady. Tom Brady, yeah. Anyway, he's a machine when it comes to going to the next level. That, that he's not happy with the number of rings he has now. He's not happy with the records he has. He's not happy with the completions and the, and the touchdowns, all the rest of that. Even when they, they won, they won the game like by 30 points. And his first statement to the reporter after is, we got to be better. We got to be better. We got to be better. One of the things that differentiates uh, winners from losers, so to speak, those that really grab a hold of what's available is the mindset that it can be gotten and the, the willingness to go after it. This applies across the board to natural things, but also applies to spiritual things. There is something to be had. There is something to be gotten. You are not the victim of forces beyond your control. All right, give that up. That thought that, you know, I guess I'll just have to wait longer. Again, if blind Bartimaeus had taken that, you know, I'm hoping Jesus noticed me. Uh, oh, he didn't. Well, I guess it wasn't God's will. That's, that's the way we think. That's that fatalistic mindset. That, uh, But we're not powerless. There are things that are provided. They're just hidden. It says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it's the glory of kings to search it out. So. He says, listen. You've begun this thing. And now you're being tested in order that, because uh, that, that's the process for this thing, but you need to have patience. Then he goes on through the book. Chapter 5, he comes back to the same thing. And he's given all of these instructions about the journey, about how you should behave, what you should be doing, how to apply yourself. And of course, right smack in the middle of that is all, well, chapter 4, it's all the stuff about, about seeking him with all your heart, with weeping and mourning, lamenting. You know, which uh, we don't know how to do in this day, day and age. Um, because, hey, you know, uh, it's a name it and claim it day. You know, if I just say, I have it, 
then it's like a habit. You know, why go through all that desperation? <laughs> anyway, James 7, 5, 7 and 9 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the, the rather the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He said, listen, be patient. He said, yeah, you are called to certain things. Yes, there are promises in your life, but, but the way it's coming about is the way a farmer puts a seed in the ground and he waters it, and through the passing of time, it begins to create a harvest. In other words, uh, you know, there's something that was planted in you. Peter says, when you became born again by the seed, the eternal seed of the word of God. In other words, the nature of God was planted inside of you, and you are made of the dust of the earth. So I love to say this. We are dirt. Okay, We are the dirt that God planted, is planting a seed in. And, you know, some of us like to just reorganize the mud of our life to improve its appearance. But that's not what really God has intended. If that's the world that you're living in, okay, uh, patty cake, patty cake, right? You're going to do that all your life, but you're not ever going to have a harvest of true righteousness. You create things out of the mud that have the appearance of being a tree, but, you know, it's not a tree. Certainly not going to produce anything. So he says, this is the journey. That there's a seed planted in you, and it needs to grow and produce. So like the farmer, you have to wait patiently, and you're looking for the fruit. But then he goes on as as he begins to write. He says, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. Is that there are two kingdoms. There are two sources of things that are alive. One is the kingdom of darkness, one is the kingdom of light. And so some things that are at work in the mud of your life are the tares that the enemy has sown to bring up a harvest of something else. And so uh, not only are you waiting for the seed that's that's planted in you and bringing forth the nature of God, but the enemy's trying to bring a harvest in your life as well. And so, the book is basically, if I could summarize it in this one thing. The book is, you got these two things growing up in your life. And he's saying, because you're fallen, because you're incomplete in your knowledge, you don't know the difference between the wheat and the tares. You actually can't tell the difference between which is which. And so, he said, I'm going to give you the criteria for seeing which is from this side and which is from this side. So that you can resist this one while you're waiting patiently for this one. So that you can suppress the weeds while you're letting, you know, the, the right stuff grow in your life. So everything, is, everything between chapter 1 from there on and chapter 5 is how do you figure out what it is you're giving expression to. Is there a way... To find out. Now, he, he basically says, all of these things have their context in strife, problems. Because you have two people, and they're not of the same mind. And so, basically, you got two people coming, one saying, no, this is right. No, this is right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. Spell right. No. Spell wrong. Anyway, just 
silly arguments. And he said, actually, actually, he said, there's a very clear criteria for which things, and this is the language he used, which things are from below and which things are from above. So, let me try and lay it out for us. And, and again, I'm not going to do an exhaustive uh, job of, of doing this, but oh, my, my screen disappeared. Let me, let me just point out something. Because there's two critical things in here. When you've got two people on opposite sides, on polarized sides of an issue, basically you've got strife. And that's when he goes into chapter 4. He says, where does strife of wars come from? They actually come from within you. So he's saying, not only is there uh, opposing sides, but the very fact that you can be brought into war is a manifestation of the fact that you're not operating in the wisdom that's from above. The very fact that you can be brought into a hostile posture against your brother is in itself evidence that you're operating from wisdom from below. That in itself will tell you that you're not pure. So just remember that. Okay, just remember that. Should I call out names? <laughs> All my friends. Are you still my friends? Let me point out something. So, okay, you have this dynamic. So that's why there are two things that are prevalent in the book of James. One is his warning about deception. Warns about deception four times uh, in, in chapter one. Four times he said... Brethren, do not be deceived in one form or another. I don't want you to be deceived. Well, that might be important, right? It might suggest that, it, that Christians have the possibility of not being clear on some things. You know, I mean, the, the problem I have, it's amazing. You do marital counseling, or, or and I don't do a lot, honestly. Uh, but I have done some, and I have been married. But, but whenever you get two people... And they're on opposite sides. Both of them are convinced they're the right ones. They're totally convinced. It doesn't matter what you say. And so what I've realized is that if you tell people they're wrong more than they want to hear they're wrong, then you get on the other side of the equation. They want to pull you into the, you know. And so it's, it's really hard telling people the truth when they don't want to hear the truth. This is, this is the struggle God has. Say like, I like your process to move faster. I just can't bring you into the truth fast enough. Oh, well, just show me the truth. No, you don't want to know the truth, right? You don't want the truth. That's, that's our problem. So God creates a system of frustration. Frustration. The frustration is... Okay, let me give you an example. My mom said that I was full-hearted from the day I was born. She said, she said you know, I, I would, I, whatever I did, I did with all my strength, all my heart. A no, number of examples. But she said one of the earliest ones when I started crawling. And I would crawl. And I would hit something. And I, I, would, I would hit it again and hit it again and hit it again. And so I was frustrated because I, I wanted it to move. And sometimes things don't move. And then I would, I would cry of course, I didn't have the ability to understand and see my world and go around it, you know, at that stage in my life. Maybe others had that ability at that age. I evidently did not have it. But that frustration was a manifestation of a reality I wanted to deny. 
the truth. I didn't like it. And my, and my whining and crying and frustrated and anger that I'm being inhibited is a manifestation that I really don't, I'm not prepared to deal with truth in my environment. That's a small adaptation of what we do in our natural lives. The beautiful thing and the safe thing about this is God is in charge of your frustrations. Okay. And you may think, Lord, it's that woman you gave me. It isn't the woman God gave you. It's God working through the woman he gave you. Now, are you saying she's right all the time? No, not at all. It, because we actually want to leave the realm of right and wrong. Because it's not about right and wrong, it's about life and death. Amen. And what he says, he says, you know, you're looking superficially at a world and you're dividing it between right and wrong, but that's not how I'm looking at the world. I'm looking at what's beneath your, appear, your idea of right and wrong, and I evaluate in terms of life and death. Where is it actually coming from? So he, he says, listen, if you want to know why there are frustrations in your life, and this is what he says in chapter 1, ask me. Ask me. I desperately want to show you. He said, he said if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask. So he says, listen, you're, there's trials, there's frustrations, things are happening. You're not able to go forward. You're convinced you're right. And everybody else is wrong, but you're still not going forward. Guess what? God is bigger than your sense of right and wrong, and he's the one frustrating you. He said, listen, this is like, this, this episode of your life is like security at the airport. You're pretty sure you've got no coins in your pocket, you know. And then you go through the machine, and beep, 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 beep. You know, hopefully it's not a random search. But, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, no, do you have anything in your pocket? No, not at all. So it's, sometimes it's crazy. I go through a lot of airports. So it's like, no, I don't have anything. Like, you know, it's like, there's some in, in this pocket, in this pocket. Oh, I didn't even know I had that pocket. Yeah, it's like, but, but the thing is, you can't get past this point with that stuff. God has created trials, testings, in order to reveal what's there so he can replace it with something replace it with something better. Not because he hates you and doesn't want you to go through there. He said, No, this shall not pass. You may pass, but this shall not pass. What Lord? This. Well, where is it? It's it starts inside of you. It starts inside of you. So incidentally, James goes talking about outward behaviors, and then he starts to point inwardly at these things inside. So let me read a couple of verses here. I'd love to just read the whole book, but evidently we've done that and it hasn't given us full revelation. I used to think this book was like a thousand sermons. I thought, you know, James is like all over the place. You know, he's, once he's talking about this, and he's this, and he's this, and he's this, it's actually one, one line from start to finish. He's dealing with one thing. So he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
Man, I'd like to pause right there. But there's another, there's another thing. Is that, listen, he's saying, if what you have is, is what you claim it is, it will have power to win the moment. I want to give you what lacks nothing. But the fact that you can... I mean, let me tell you how this happened in my life. In the early part of my ministry, I had all these prophetic words of what God was going to do. I was going to travel nations and, and have this apostolic authority, prophetic, all kinds of stuff. Many of which has not come to pass yet. So I'm, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And I'm thinking, you know, this will be happening within months. So five years, six years, seven years, eight years, ten years, twelve years, fourteen years. You know, time is going on and it's, it's not happening. It's, it's, and and at, at one point particularly, I got a lot of resistance from people. And I thought, God, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with these people, these antichrist religious fallen beings standing in my way? <laughs> and you know what the Lord said to me? He said, listen, nothing's impossible with God. And so you imagine that you and I are in perfect sync. And yet the evidence would say otherwise because you can be resisted. I can't. And you are here you're trying to go forward into something you believe is me, you're sure is me, I said was me, but you're going at it with more stuff and wrong stuff, and so I'm the one. I've created the system that what's born of God will overcome every hurdle. You're not overcoming the hurdles, so you're saying the hurdle's too big. Yet you said nothing's impossible to him that believes. So what is really the problem? Really the problem is I don't have enough to overcome this hurdle, but I want to believe that I do have enough. Because I trust in my righteousness. I trust in my sincerity. I'm good-hearted. I'm, I'm here to do your will. Oh, yeah. Well, you think you are, Mark, but actually you're not. What? How do you know that? Same question that the, the disciples in James asked. So... James tells him, this is how I know. Do you want to know how you know? Oh. Okay. So he says, all right, if anyone you lacks, okay. Uh, but let's patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, in other words, if anyone doesn't understand this process, then ask me. All right. Um, so if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives liberally. Wow. And without reproach. And it will be given him. That's great. Oh, I just have to ask God. You sit there with it. Well, I asked God for wisdom. And he didn't give it to me. Yeah, he, he deals with you next. Right? What does he say? He says, but let him ask in faith. Ah! I did ask. So either... I did ask. I did ask in faith and God never gave it to me. Okay, so yeah, God's a liar. You're correct. You did it all right. But still, things aren't working for you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. If you did it right, you would be winning. You would be overcoming. The hurdles would not be able to hold hold you back. Or at the very least, your patience would enable you to cross your arms and wait longer. What, what, What is this process? God wants to show you what's really happening in your heart. That there's not faith, that there's not patience, that there's unbelief, that there's striving, that there's pride, that there's a consideration about my image. And all of those things are dictating my approach to everything. But I'm oblivious to that because I'm all about surface things until I hit the, th- the wall and I said, this is unfair. 
So James says, no, it's not unfair. God is proving what's really behind the surface of your life. Not to condemn you or to hurt you, but to give you an, a means to overcome it. Get rid of the stuff in your pockets and you can get through security. The intention of God is to get you where he wants, but he must separate you from some of your stuff. Wisdom. And the process of patience is, is, is because it's going to take a little while for frustration to create enough desire that you want the truth. So, Holy Spirit, show us where we are in this journey right now. Show us where we are. Because we're all going through this in the same way those believers were going through it in some way. And everything in your life manifests some of those realities. The, the, the horrendous part of this is there's this beautiful wisdom, this understanding about how the kingdom of God works, what makes for victory and failure. And, and he's wanting to, he says, I want to give that liberally. Now, I'm not going to go into the faith part because that's a whole other area. Let him ask in faith. But he goes on, and uh, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is uh, approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. So, okay, it's not God, you know, putting evil in you and creating evil. It is just him showing you what's at work already in your heart. But here's what he goes into. He, he talks about the deception. Let me just read a couple of these in verse 16. He says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Oh, sorry, no, verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my brethren. And he's talking about where everything comes from. And then in verse 22, he says, Be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 26, he says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. I can see why they wanted to exclude this book. <laughs> That's a little harsh. <laughs> my, my, my religion is useless. But he touches it right there in that verse. He touches a key, 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 key thing here. The tongue. The tongue. He, he touches the tongue in verse 19, verse 26, in chapter 3, verse 5, in chapter 3, verse 6, in chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 11, and chapter 5, verse 9. So I think the tongue is relevant. Okay? Seven references to the tongue. Why would the tongue be so, so important? Because according to what Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the, the tongue speaks or the mouth speaks. In other words, it's important to see what you're saying because what you're saying is a manifestation of what you may not even know about yourself. So how does this play out? We're going along, we're trying to be Christians, we bump up against some imperfect bloke. He makes us angry. We curse him because he should be cursed. Getting in my way like that. And God says, yeah, okay. That whole exchange has come from something that comes from below. If it didn't come from below, you wouldn't be angry. If it didn't come from below, you wouldn't be frustrated. If it didn't come below, you wouldn't curse. You would deal with it patiently. But we say, but, but I'm right. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. 
Right, Jenna? Let's talk about that. I'm right. I'm right. Yeah, yeah. There's a scenario. I love this. There's a scenario in the Old Testament where Israel is asking for a king. And God says to them, I got a man. His name's Saul. And, uh, and Samuel's all, like, upset. He's totally upset. He's like, no, God, you're supposed to be our king. They said, no, just go anoint him. And, and, and Sam is all dejected and upset. And he, he's pretty sure, he's pretty sure he is defending the honor of God. Right? I'm upset for you. This is so not good for you. And you know, God rebukes him. He says, listen, it's not about you. Well, throw out that purity of motive out the door. Even Samuel was, had self-interest in his pursuit of God's... But this is the right way. God in charge, not a man. This is the right way. And Samuel's up impatience and the fact that he was distressed by it was actually an evidence of self-interest in him. But let's look at the other side. Why would God say, do it wrong? Patience. Patience, because God has patience. Because God says, this is a minor detour. Thousand years are like a day to me. Give them what they want. If for no other reason than to show them, this is a bad version. But I'm willing, because I'm walking with the people, I I will indulge their, their desire, their bad version, in order to show them that it's a bad version. So Samuel enters into this and says, no, we'll polarize these causes for or against this earthly king. And I'm against it. And, 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 uh, and God has said, yeah, the fact that you're against it and you're so upset and is the example that you're actually operating on the same human plane. Get over yourself. Go anoint him. I will have my king on my holy hill. You don't have to worry about that. You see... The little, I, I, I did this so much, so much. When, when the things were going not the direction that I thought, and I would be really mad, but I, I'm right. So therefore, I would posture myself in antithesis to that thing instead of, instead of realizing, you know that venom that's coming up, that ability to dislike the people who are on the other side of the issue? That shows you that you're actually on an earthly plane and you're both wrong. But my, my version is more theologically correct. My version is more contemporarily appropriate for this and this reason. This. He said, forget all that. What's coming out of your heart? What's coming out of your heart right now? Is it wisdom that's from below? Is it a kind of thinking that comes from, from the lower echelons? Sheol, or is it from me? So in chapter 3, he gives us a criteria. He said, listen, the wisdom that's from above, this is what it's like. The wisdom that's from below, this is what it's like. So he said, when you come into an issue, and you might be correct, but correct is only, it's not even a tenth of the issue. The issue is, what spirit are you moving in? That's what he was trying to tell the disciples when they said, shall we call fire down on them? Clearly they they have rejected the Messiah. And Jesus says, yeah, you're correct, but you don't know what spirit you're of. 
This wisdom that wants to call down fire to destroy these ones who are made in the image of God is not from above. That's from below. That's rooted in your self-interest. That's rooted in your self-importance. You're not worried about me being rejected. You're about worried about you being rejected. And so what's surfacing in you? So why, well, why, why all this? Because God is saying, listen, I, I, I want you to be aware of the issues of your heart. I want, to, I want you to be aware of the power at work behind your desire to dislike somebody. It's not from me. It's not from, yeah, but what about really bad people? It's not from me. What about, the, what about really bad people like the ones who put you on the cross? Yeah, the ones I said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, those ones. Well, God... See, this answers the whole question about us as a church. How come we don't have more influence? How come there's not more glory? How come there's not more of heaven here? I mean, we're technically doing things nice. We're singing great Bethel contemporary songs. We're, we got great harmonies. And, you know, we, uh, and we're sincere. Like, why isn't there more? Because underneath the surface, we are the aggregate of all of our hearts. And all of our hearts are not completely where they ought to be. Which God already knows, which is not a problem for him, and it's not a struggle. He's saying, listen, I just, would you, would you, would you look in the mirror and for, quit forgetting about what you see? Well, how do I do that? Well, every time something comes up and you say the wrong thing, and then you say, well, it wasn't really evil and demonic. It was, it was just, I was tired and I hadn't eaten yet. I needed a Snickers bar. No, no, no. That was more a manifestation of what was hidden than when you are all composed. That's a lie. And the, the wisdom that's, that would dismiss that as being a part of you is demonic. Earthly. That's what Ephesians, I mean, James 3. A lot of ringing up here. Can we, can't fix that. I'll back up. I'd like to be close to you. If you're all sitting right here, I might feel really. So we're on this journey to get it right, yeah, yeah. To get our theology right, absolutely. To get our, the truth right. But how do we come to the place of realizing what is true? By discerning what forces do we lean on to back our side? And when push comes to shove, are we willing to curse our brothers? To destroy those who are made in the image of God? That epitomizes the kingdom of darkness. So let me read a couple of other really nice scriptures. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Not a forgetful hearer. This is, you got, this, I know I'm running out of time here, I think. Looking into the law of liberty. You know what the law of liberty is? Law of liberty? Almost like opposites, oxymoron, yeah. Law of liberty. It, it's the law that says you're guilty. 
Esperan que no la chico. It's able to embrace both sides. He said, listen, be a doer of the word. You've been given the law of liberty, which you're quite happy to take for yourself. But are you willing to give it to your neighbor? Can you be a doer of that word, or are you just a hearer only, taking it for yourself, seeing your ugly face in the mirror, going away, and then accusing somebody else of being ugly and wanting the whole penalty of the law to fall on them? Yeah, I can do that when it's not my sin particularly. Well, you know, the sins I struggle with, those are normal. Those are acceptable darknesses. They're not as bad. Okay, how are we measuring it? If you, again, Paul says, the one who has broken the law in one is guilty of the whole law. Well, we had a, we had a moment, actually a deep moment of repentance in, I don't know if it was St. John or friend of mine, and he shared, and he, I think it was either at the cry or in St. John, but he got up to the nation, he said this, God, I've sinned. He said, I accused the men who have taken Bathsheba into their arms, but I have taken Bathsheba into my heart. And according to Jesus, the both are the same. So which among you has not taken Bathsheba into his heart. Who has never had a moment of weakness and lust and desire or anything? He said, if you thought it in your mind, it's equal to doing it. The law of liberty says, you're guilty, but you want to hang him. Mercy, yeah. forgiveness, love, redemption. One last thing. Later on, he says, out of your mouth comes cursing and blessing. He said, this is what he said, no spring brings forth both fresh and bitter water. What's the message there? You have two springs. You have two springs. The evidence is that nasty words come out. Maybe not everybody sees it, not on the... Maybe you're not framing them up for the whole world to see. But even if you succeed in not saying them, have you felt them? So there's two springs, and this is the whole message. There's two springs in your life. One is anchored in the world and one is anchored in the heaven. Well, how do I get away from it? It says weep, mourn, and lament. There is a pursuit of me that will break the tyranny of two, two worlds and decrease the one and increase the other to the place where the one no longer exists. Well, how do you know it no longer exists? When you're persecuted and you're reviled and you're hated, you only bless. You don't even have to try to not curse. You're just so... How's that even possible? So overcome with compassion... For the one who's broken, you, you see them as the, a victim themselves. They, they, oh God, forgive them. They don't know what, that's what Jesus did. Because he didn't. The other one never came up. Whoever lacks wisdom, whoever doesn't understand why things are being held up, frustrated, 
ask. Father, I pray today, God, you are not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. God, we are done lying to ourselves. We are done sowing deception. We are done pretending we're better than what we are. We are here saying, God, give me more mercy. God, make me like Jesus. Make me the place where I love so much there is no even ability to curse. I don't, there's none of this, oh, I don't like him. There's, there's no such thing in our vocabulary anymore. It's not justifiable. It doesn't even exist. God, make us that kind of Christian where we love, where we love, where we love. That's the journey. So I think it's safe to say we're not there yet. And God's good with that. Because he is patient. Yeah. He, said, but I, he said, I planted a seed in you. And the seed has the power of eternal life to make you somebody you could never be with all the discipline, with all the choices, with all the ambition, all the things you would use to motivate yourself to say the right things, do the right things. The seed will produce a nature that is far greater than anything you can pretend to be. That's my plan. That's what I'm bringing forth. And I, like a farmer, waiting for the precious fruit of the earth, I'm waiting for the fruit of the nature of my son in my people. And I'm going to have it. He says, I'm going to have it. Let's stand up together. Father, thank you that that which you began in us, you will complete. You will complete. So, Father, we lay down our impatience. We lay down our frustration. We lay down our blaming of people, circumstances, you, church, whatever we're blaming for our our hearts. God, change our hearts. Free us. Lord, we want the truth that sets us free. This is the journey we're on. It's not finished this morning because of this message, but it's a reminder. Stay the course. Stay the course. Don't give up. Stay the course. You will win if you do not quit. Can we all say this together? I want to be more like Jesus. That really is the solution, isn't it? You know, and I was just thinking about this as he was talking. I was like, well, I really want to work out too. I want to be in good shape and I want to eat healthy. There's a resistance to everything, isn't there? We have to fight for this. We have to want this. We have to crave this more than we crave anything else. And so may the Father shift our hearts, change our hearts where we truly want to be like him. That we'll fight for that. Every single day of our life, we'll fight for it. So, Father, guide us in this journey. It's not easy. Today's a reminder, God, that we need you. And we need to fight for this relationship with you, Father. We need to fight to be more like you. We need to fight against this old nature that just keeps coming back and trying to creep up on us. But we say no in the name of Jesus. We choose you. We choose you. Father, I pray that you would bless each person in this house. God, I don't know all the specific needs, but you do. And right now, you can touch each one. And I pray that as each person goes through this week, that you will give them strength, that you will give them endurance. Father, that you would build each and every one of our faith. 
that our faith tomorrow will be stronger than it was today. God, I pray that you would guide us in every decision we make, every choice we make, when we have been wrong, that we will choose to love, when we have been hurt, that we will choose to bless. Father, show us how to be more like you. Touch each of us, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray the blessing of the Lord upon all of you. In Jesus' name, amen.